Okay. So, sorry for that delay. We, a uh, little technical problem. Last week, we started talking about, in Revelation chapter 6, we we're talking about the seals being opened. Those are the seals on the scroll. And the sixth seal uh, is very descriptive of things that are going to happen in a very uh, uh, apocalyptic manner. Well, the content of chapter 6 parallels really closely to Jesus speaking to his disciples. And in, that's in, found in Matthew 24. What happened was Jesus had gone and he told the Pharisees, how are you going to escape Gehenna, the punishment of Gehenna? How are, uh, this temple is not going to remain standing? And as he left saying all those things, this is right before he's crucified, uh, Peter, James, John, and Andrew come to him and they say, Lord, tell us, when will these things be? What is the sign of your coming? And what will be the end of this age? Those are three questions that he has asked in chapter 24. And we left off at verse 16. So if you aren't with us, just know that we've jumped into Jesus has said a lot. Here's the next thing he says that will happen in terms of a directive. Verse 16 says, Then let them which be in Judea flee unto the mountains. Now, uh, by the way, uh, many people today talk about the second coming being terrible in our day and there being nuclear bombs blowing us up and all this stuff. But notice that Jesus says, if you're in Judea, flee into the mountains. Now, that's no way to escape a nuclear holocaust. And it doesn't really apply to people who are living in downtown Salt Lake unless they flip up to the Wasatch Mountains. But he says, if you be in Judea, flee into the mountains. Why do I say that? Because everything Jesus talks about relative to the end of things and his second coming is speaking to them there. That's what it's about. So there's another example of it. He says in verse 17, Matthew 24, let him which is on the housetop and you know, here in Salt Lake City, we, we hang out on our housetops a lot. Uh, not come down to take anything out of the house, neither let him which is in the field return to take his clothes. So reasonably, we know that Jesus in telling his disciples when these things would be, when will be the end of the age, and what will be the sign of his coming is all speaking to them then. Now, go to verse 17 and 18 for a second. Bible scholar Edersheim, he says that this advice of if you're up on your housetop, don't come down to get anything that is out of your that is in your house, because he says in 70 AD Jerusalem, the housetops of old Jerusalem were flat roof roofed and were situated right next to each other, and they created a path, a way for people to walk actually through the city, but not be down in the streets. And so Edersheim says that the Christians escaped the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD by following what he says is a road of, uh, 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 a road of roofs and to the edge of the city where they escaped. And apparently, according to Eusebius, historian 300 years later, all the Christians who were in Jerusalem escaped from Jerusalem through roads like the rooftop roads and went to a place called Pella. Now, that's what we say, that's what many, that's what tradition says happened to all the Christians. And not one of them was lost. Not one life was lost 
Um, but I personally question this report about all of them going to Pella because I think that that's when Christ took his church. That's where I think the contents of, of uh, Second Thessalonians are fulfilled, where he took his church and changed them a twinkling of an eye, and that was the rapture of his church. Jesus continues in Matthew 24, and he says at verse 19 and 20, "'Woe to them that are with child, "'and to them that give suck in those days. "'Pray that your flight be not in winter, "'neither on the Sabbath day.'" So Jesus is saying, listen, you guys, Matthew, Mark, Luke, I mean, Peter, James, John, and Andrew, you've asked me, what is the sign of your coming? When will all these things be? And he says, let me tell you something. Woe to them that, are, that have a, a baby and they're breastfeeding during that time and pray that your flight be not in the winter, neither on the Sabbath day. Jesus, it says, and the Greek word is, it says he wept over Jerusalem Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. But the Greek word is he howled. He howled out and in, in wailed over the, over the city and what was going to happen to it. And as we continue on today, we're gonna see that what was going to happen to Jerusalem because the wrath of God was falling upon that generation uh, it was so bad that, uh, well, we'll talk about it. Ask yourself, who cares in this, if the second coming is still going to happen to us if it's on the Sabbath day? Who cares if Jesus comes on a, from a Friday night to a Saturday night? It has no bearing on our lifestyle. So right there, Jesus says, listen, pray that it doesn't happen on the Sabbath day. Why? Because there were travel restrictions the Jews and, and many people didn't believe in, so it would have been very difficult. That's what he says. So we can see from instances like this, again, Jesus is talking about that day and that age and all of this being fulfilled then and not in our day. In conjunction to what he said in Matthew 24, 19, Luke says something very interesting. It's in Luke chapter 23, verses 27 through 30. Now, in Luke's narrative, listen to what is said here. And there followed Jesus a great company of people and of women which also bewailed and lamented him. Women were following him and people, and they were crying over him and what was going to happen. And Jesus turned and he said to them, daughters of Jerusalem, weep not for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, ready? The days are coming in the which they shall say, blessed are those who are barren and the wombs that never bear children and the breasts that never gave suck, then they shall begin to say to the mountains, fall on us and to the hills, cover us. Remember that line that Jesus says to living women, you know, you're gonna wish you weren't alive. You're weeping for me. You're gonna wish you weren't. And you're gonna, it's gonna get so bad. You're gonna say, fall on us to the hills and, and cover us. Notice the similarity of that line to Matthew 24, where Jesus, uh, 19, where Jesus says, woe to them that are with child and to them that are breastfeeding in those days. Luke account puts it this way, blessed are the barren in the wombs that never bear children and the breasts that never give suck. It's the, almost the same thing. Jesus says it in 24, Luke says it a different way. But uh, Jesus continues in the Luke account, listen to this, in the Luke account, Jesus continues and says, then shall they, he's speaking to the mothers, begin to say to the mountains, fall on us and cover us. Remember that? 
Well, guess what? Revelation chapter six, six seal, verses 15 and 17 says. Speaking of a time that's going to happen, Revelation 6, 15, 17 says, and the kings of the earth and the country and the great men and the rich men and the chief captains and the mighty men and every bondman and every freeman hid themselves in the dens and in the rocks of the mountains and said to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him that sits on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb. So we have the same verbiage being used by Jesus to the women folk who are lamenting over his uh, imminent death and him saying, listen, don't weep for me, weep for yourselves. There's gonna come time where you will say, mountains fall on us. And here in the unveiling of the sixth seal, we read that the men would be saying, fall on us mountains, cover us, hide us from him that sits on the throne and from the lamb, the wrath of the lamb of God. So we've already discussed uh, how Revelation was written to the seven churches many times, warning them of the impending destruction. So there is an explanation of Matthew 24, 19 through 20. So Jesus continues at Matthew uh, 24, 21 through 22. For then, speaking of the time, the end of things shall be great tribulation, such as was not since the beginning of the world to this time, no, nor ever shall be. And except those days should be shortened, there should no flesh be saved. But for the elect's sake, those days shall be shortened. So you remember the apostles came? Jesus, tell us of the time, the second coming. What's the end of this age gonna look like? And he says, there's gonna be great, great tribulation, verse 21. We've read and seen a lot of carnage in the history of the world. We've had World War I, World War II. I just watched one of the, I think it's the best movie ever made about war, and it's called Come and See, and it's in relation to Revelation. It's a Russian movie. Unbelievable film you, everyone should watch. It's the most realistic, uh, and it's about the Belarusian invasion uh, of, by the Germans into Russia and what happened then. But here Jesus says, the great tribulation was not since the beginning of the world to this time, no, nor ever shall be. And what many people say is, listen, the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD is not the worst we've ever seen. So therefore, it, Jesus had to be wrong. Uh, it wasn't the worst that has ever been. So that's not, he's not talking about the end of the world in Jerusalem. He's talking about a future tense. You get what I'm saying? We've had far greater battles, World War I, World War II, perhaps Vietnam, uh, where so much is going on and people are killed. So he says, this is, there's something wrong with this passage. It couldn't mean then. Um, he uses the word cosmos here. Since the beginning of the cosmos to this time, no, nor shall ever be. So he's not talking about the area. He says this tribulation will be the worst the world has ever seen. So we have to ask ourselves, was the destruction of Jerusalem the worst that has ever happened, or has there been something else? We can say with Jesus saying that Jesus was wrong. We have experienced greater tribulation, world wars. So if he was talking about the destruction of Jerusalem, he was wrong. Or we can say a greater tribulation is waiting us in the future. 
Or we can say what happened in 70 AD to Jerusalem was the worst tribulation the world has ever or will ever see. Or there's something in the language that we're missing, we just don't understand. Those are some of the ways that we're going to have to approach understanding this passage. Admittedly, it's one of the tougher things to explain in the context of Scripture than many of the other points. And let's talk about it quickly. First of all, Jews are known for describing apocalyptic events with great hyperbole. And we've talked about this in jest sometimes. The mother says, my son dropped out of uh, medical school. There has never been a worse pain in the heart of a mother and on the face of the earth. They talk in hyperbole. This is the worst that has ever happened. That's part of their culture. Everything was expressed dramatically for emphasis. So we look for it to fit literally. Sometimes there's difficulty. Was the Lord using this method to describe the end of that age and his second coming and all that being wrapped up? Could, it, could be. This is the typical explanation most preterists uh, give. Uh, symbolic language was common in the Old Testament. So let me give you an example of that. And, it's, and, and taking the language literally causes problems. In uh, 2 Kings 18.15, excuse me, 18.5, speaking of Hezekiah, Scripture says, He, Hezekiah, trusted in the Lord God of Israel so that after him was none like him, among all the kings of Judah, no, nor who were before him. So in 2 Kings 18.5, Hezekiah is said to have no Judah king before or after him who were like him. He was the great, okay? In Josiah, uh, it is described in 2 Kings 23.25. It says, now before him, Josiah, there was no king like him, who turned to the Lord with all his heart, with all his soul, with all his might, according to the law of Moors, nor after him did any arise like him. So in the same book of 2 Kings, we have Jewish writers describing Hezekiah as someone, there were none like him who trusted in the God of Israel, and there would be none before or after like him. And in the same book, just five chapters later, Josiah is described as the same thing. None like him before or after. You can't have it. You know, one or the other is the one who's none are like and before or after. So obviously the language is hyperbolic. It does not just, it doesn't mean literally. It just means these, these were great men and there aren't any like them. And, and I think we can say in both cases, that is true. There were none like them, but it is very extreme language. And I'm using it just to show you that that is how the Jews would speak. Exodus 11.6 says, And there was a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as it was not before, nor shall be like it again. Now that's all the way back in Exodus, right? There will not be such a great cry in all the land ever again. Uh, but then we have to say, well, was the cry in Jerusalem's destruction greater? Because Jesus says it's the greatest uh, tumult that's ever occurred and nothing before has ever happened like it. It's a way of speaking. Uh, Ezekiel 5.9, it says, And I will do among you what I have never done, and like the which I will never do again because of all your abominations. 
So all the way back in Ezekiel, we have God saying, I'm going to do this and I'll never do it again because of your abominations. But Jesus says what's going to happen is the worst that's ever been up to this time or ever will be. So we get so bogged down into making scripture literal and it has to be this says this that we get in trouble and we have contradictions, what are apparent contradictions, but they're really not contradictions at all in my opinion. So speaking of this time that Jesus is talking about in Matthew 24 and Revelation 6 is talking about, Daniel 9, 12 says, speaking of this age that Jesus is prophetically telling his apostles about, and he has confirmed his words, which he spoke against us and against our judges who judged us by bringing upon us a great disaster for under the whole heaven, such has never been done as what has been done to Jerusalem. That's a prophetic utterance in Daniel of what Jesus is saying is coming their way. Daniel 21, I mean 12, one says, at that time, Michael shall stand up the great prince who stands watch over the sons of your people, and there shall be a time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation, even to that time, and at that time your people shall be delivered. So more of this expressive language of this is the worst, right? Uh, Joel 2.2 says, a cloud of darkness and gloominess, a day of clouds and thick darkness, like the morning clouds spread over the mountains. A people come great and strong, the like of whom has never been, nor will there ever be such after them, even for many successive generations. So it's highly possible that when Jesus says this in Matthew 24, he was just using Hebraic language and imagery to convey his message. Uh, or Jesus was right. And what happened in Jerusalem in 70 AD, as described by him in Matthew 24, was the worst that has ever happened. Another line of thinking is that because it was the first century Jews who put Christ to death, had him put to death, because their crime was the worst in history, there could not be any greater crime in the history of humanity than for a people to put the Messiah to death, that the punishment would have to be equally as bad. The worst crime is met with the worst punishment. And that could be what Jesus meant when he said, there will never be such as this in terms of tribulation. So just put it that way. You kill the son of God, the punishment to come thereafter is going to be commensurate with such a crime and it's going to be bad. Uh, Israel was divorced by God and his covenant people in my estimation. Never again would the Jews have special status before God. Uh, and, um, and as Jesus, or as Paul says, there is neither Jew nor Greek before God any longer. So we could interpret uh, verse 21 in Matthew 24 in this sense as well. But the, all that being said, those are possible justifications for what Jesus meant. I tend to think that if we look at the conditions, we look at the number of people who were killed, how they died, the horrible nature of the way things came down, the lack of antiseptics, the lack of painkillers, the fact that God was pouring his wrath upon Jerusalem for rejecting his son, maybe Jesus was just plain old correct. Maybe there has never been any such wrath 
tribulation poured out upon men before or after, even including World War I and II. So let me give you what Flavius Josephus on the end of what he says about the end of that age, the destruction of what fell. Most of our knowledge about the suffering the Jews had at the end of this period of time this, uh, and the siege of Jerusalem come from his writings. Uh, Josephus was a Jewish general who fought against the Romans and was captured in July of 67 AD. So he was fighting in the, in the Jewish war against the Romans. You have that? He made a super, super, it's impossible to happen prophecy to the Romans. And he said that a Roman general named Vespasian would one day become emperor of the Roman Empire. So here's this Jew, uh, he is fighting against the Roman army and he comes up with a prophecy and he says, let me tell you Romans, I'm in jail, but Vespasian is going to be your general. And it was, the odds were just improbable, almost as big as maybe like Trump or Obama becoming president, I don't know. So, uh, this prophecy seemed doomed because Vespasian didn't have a sound Roman pedigree. So it would be like saying this guy doesn't even, he doesn't have anything to, to, to meet this, this challenge. Nevertheless, two years after Nero killed himself on June 9th of 68 AD, Vespasian became the new Roman Empire, emperor. And he was so impressed that Josephus had an ear of God and knew and prophesied that he would be the guy who would become emperor, that he freed him from prison and he made him a Roman citizen and he adopted him as a Flavian. That's why we call him Flavius Josephus. And he commissioned, yeah, and he commissioned him to, listen, I, what I want you to do is follow me around and I want you to write the history of everything you see. So Josephus had an insight to the ways Jews were and are and believed and thought. And Vespasian, the Roman emperor, said, travel with us and you give us a history of the Jews. So he wrote the history of the Jews going all the way back to the Maccabean revolt, going all the way, way back to Moses. He wrote these wonderful histories. And then when Jerusalem was starting to come under attack, Josephus was right there on hand to write about what was happening. Uh, Josephus' first work was the War of the Jews. Well, Vespasian had a son, and his son's name is Titus. And when Titus went into Jerusalem for the final destruction, Josephus went with him and gave the historian, this gave the historian Josephus a firsthand position to record what he saw in the final year of the war on Jerusalem. Still a Jew and a man who loved the Jews, he even tried to persuade them to surrender to the Roman powers. He tried to get the, his brothers to stop and just give up, but no doing, so he ends up reporting their destruction. He began by noting there, and I know I've talked about this before, but we are trying to keep up with everything that Revelation's talking about. He noted their starvation. This was the first thing. And Revelation has become kind of the impetus to get many people to read about a future event for us and to have food storage and to do all sorts of things because of coming famine. 
like Joseph in Egypt and all that stuff. Well, starvation is definitely part of the apocalyptic literature in the Bible for what was coming for Jerusalem. And we read it today and think it's coming for us, but it was to them. And Josephus notes the starvation. He said the Jews had enough wheat for a night of years, for a number of years, excuse me, but due to infighting, them fighting with each other, and it was prophesied by Jesus that the love of man would wax cold at this time. It did. And because of their infighting, they destroyed their own supplies. So they had stores of wheat to last them, but because of their own stupid infighting with each other, they destroyed those stores. Then they robbed and slew each other through barbarous means. And Josephus said, they did as much harm to themselves as the Romans did to them. So we're seeing when Jesus says in Matthew 24 that the love of man will wax cold in these last days. This is a sign that it's happening. You can see it according to Josephus' record. They were killing each other and robbing from each other the very wheat that could have sustained the nation for years. Pretty soon, dead bodies were piling up around the city. First, they tried to bury the dead. And if you know Judaism, you know how important that is. They don't leave their bodies laying around. They don't leave them hanging on a tree, as the Old Testament says. They have a day to take the body and put it in the ground ceremonially. Well, things had gotten so bad that their bodies are out on the street, laying around, thrown in the Valley of Hinnom. And, um, and they piled them into empty houses and then would just shut the doors, according to Josephus. Before long, they tossed thousands upon thousands upon thousands into a valley at the south, I think it's the south end of Jerusalem, which is called the Valley of Hinnom, which is known as Gehenna. And that is a place where the children of Israel used to offer up sacrifices to the false god Moloch. Well, this valley was still in Jerusalem. Then when Jesus said, and Jesus said to the Pharisees, how will you escape the judgment in the Valley of Hinnom and Gehenna? And they threw the bodies in that place. Josephus writes, quote, when Titus in going his rounds along those valleys saw them full of dead bodies and the thick putrefaction running about them, he gave a groan and spreading out his hands to heaven, called God to witness that this was not his doing. Titus, I'm not doing this, he says, right? And he called God as a witness to say that Josephus says this was the sad case of the city of Jerusalem. So that gives us something before the destruction ever took place. Jesus says it's the worst that has ever been and ever will be. This gives us some idea of what was happening, all right? Jesus said to uh, the, those leaders, how will you escape the damnation of Gehenna? I think he was talking about this very thing. Uh, in any case, Josephus reports many more horrors. For instance, I've talked about this. The famous one is he witnessed a mother who snatched up her, her son, uh, who was breastfeeding at the time, and she killed him before his eyes, ate half of him, and saved the other half for later. Uh, straight out of the annals of uh, Josephus' report of what the Jews were uh, under at that time. He said starvation was so horrible, they wished they could die, and they looked upon the dead with envy. Uh, he reported they got so desperate for food that they searched in the sewers for human and cattle waste and consumed it. 
in order to try to stay alive. We're talking about this is firsthand history of what happened at the destruction of Jerusalem. Josephus notes the irony of that a Jew was not allowed to touch waste under the law. And by the end, they were eating it in order to survive. We're talking brutal for a people whose culture meant everything to them. What went into their mouth meant everything to them. They were brought low by this. And Jesus is telling his apostles there on the Olivet Discourse, it's coming. This is what to look for, right? Outside the city walls, Roman soldiers caught 500 people a day, crucified as many as they possibly could, day in and day out, 500 people plus trying to escape. Josephus writes, their multitude was so great that room was wanting for crosses and crosses wanting for bodies. It was an endless cycle of crucify him, crucify him, get the body down, crucify him, just a machine to kill. Again, Josephus' own words, quote, neither did any city ever suffer such miseries, nor did any age ever breed a generation, which was Jesus' generation, by the way, more fruitful in wickedness than this was from the beginning of the world. This is a historian of Jewish antiquity. He knew all the wars they had gone under, and he says, never before has there been seen such wickedness among a people. That was part of the horror of this place, was the, the people who were suffering were so bad, they were attacking and killing each other. He adds, those carried away captive, 97,000. And those that perished, 1,100,000, a large number because the city was full of visitors due to the Passover. That's the irony of it, is that the Jews were mandated by the law to come from every part of the nation to Jerusalem for the Passover. And it was at this time, the city chocked full of these people when everything went down. Again, many say that the preterist view is new. They say this wasn't known. Last week, I gave you two quotes that prove that otherwise. Let me give you two more. From 349 to 407, Chrysostom, he's an early church father, said this, quote, listen carefully to this. Remembering this saving commandment and all those things which came to pass for us, the cross, the grave, the resurrection on the third day, the ascension into heaven, the sitting down at the right hand, the second and glorious coming again. Having come to pass, and he lists those things. That's in 349 AD. He says all those things have come to pass. When you take the information from what we're uh, talking about in scripture, and we take what the early church leaders said, and we put it together, it's unconscionable that we will still read this and think it applies to us. I'm sorry, it's the only way I could say it. Another one, Origen, uh, 100 AD. This isn't as clear, but he says this. I challenge anyone to prove my statement untrue if I said that the entire Jewish nation, entire Jewish nation was destroyed less than one whole generation later on account of the sufferings which they inflicted on Jesus. For it was, I believe, 42 years from the time they crucified Jesus to the destruction of Jerusalem. 
So Origins, or Oregon's, however you say it, his pr perspective was, this was the end of that age. Now, people say, Sean, you're, uh, if you believe this, you are being anti-Semitic. You are turning against the nation of Israel who has all the promises of God. I'm not anti-anything. I'm not even anti-Mormon, uh, but I'm not anti-Semitic. Uh, the state of Israel is a political uh, thing and whatever that goes on with that's politically motivated and politically driven. To tie in this stuff to them still and think that it, all this is going to happen to them again at Jesus' second coming is really anachronistic. It doesn't have any connection to uh, the reality of time. Why is this important? Because if you understand the Bible in the right light, you will change so radically in how you live your Christian faith. And people don't understand that. They think that to be a Christian who, and, and I know I often soft sell this by saying, well, I could be wrong, or it really doesn't matter if you're a futurist or an idealist or a historist or a preterist, it's all okay. And it is all okay, because we all have our opinions. But if you really wanna be, uh, walking in the light of truth that's presented to us by scripture, the preterist view has to be maintained. It has to be seen because then you read scripture through the proper eyes and not through some futuristic application. It has everything to do with how you live your faith, how we do church, how, we, how everything is played out is, is done by and through the way your eschatology uh, stands. So moving on, let's pick up where Jesus continues with the signs of the times. When will these things be? When will be the end of this age? When will be your coming? Verse 23 through 26, where he adds to, uh, and he says, then if any man says to you, Peter, James, John, Andrew, lo, here is Christ, or there, believe it not. For there shall arise false Christs and false prophets and shall show great signs and wonders insomuch that if it were possible, they should deceive the very elect. Behold, I have told you before. Wherefore, if they shall say to you, behold, he is in the desert, go not forth. Behold, he is in the secret chambers, believe it not. So there's another sign he gives them. What are the signs? He tells them, if there's people saying, come and follow me, this is where the Messiah is, he's in the desert, he's in this place, he's doing miracles, believe him. He says, don't believe it. During the first half of the first century, after Christ ascended, there were many false prophets that had arisen in the Roman Empire. We know this again from Josephus' accounts and from Tacitus, another Roman historian. They claimed, and some did, perform astonishing miracles by and through whatever power they had. According to the church historian Eusebius, when Phaedus was procurator of Judea, a man named Thutis led a whole bunch of people out to the Jordan where he promised to divide a river in front of them. So this is fulfilling what Christ said. Be careful of those who are saying, come out into the desert. Well, this Thutis, according to Eusebius, he says he did that. He led a bunch of people out and he said, I'm gonna divide the river Jordan. Josephus tells that upon hearing this, Phaedus, uh, the Roman procurator, sent an army of cavalry out there and killed everybody there and captured that, the ones that they didn't kill. 
About this time, a self-proclaimed prophet from Egypt gathered a vast crowd of people on the Mount of Olives overlooking Jerusalem. There he promised that at his command, the walls of Jerusalem would fall before them, allowing them entrance into the city. When Felix, another Roman procreator, heard of this, he sent an army against them. 400 people were killed, 200 more were taken prisoner. This is a fulfillment of Jesus says, be careful. They say, low Christ here, low Christ there. Follow him here, follow him there. Here is the fulfillment of that. Furthermore, in Samaria, many people worshiped a man named Simeon. Claiming to be someone great, this man performed many magic acts or miracles and uh, claiming that he had divine power. He's Simon Magnus, is known throughout early church history as being this guy that the Samaritans uh, uh, followed. But here's the one that's most convincing from the records of Josephus. Vespasian himself, who was only, he would promote himself as the Messiah. So those of you who know futuristic eschatology, when people today say, oh, you know, the Antichrist is gonna come, he's gonna claim to be Christ and people will follow him and then he's gonna reveal himself. And so we have to watch out for this, et cetera, et cetera. Vespasian fulfills that role way back then. He not only believed himself to be the Messiah, but he had a following of people who believed he was too. Before his triumphal entry into Rome, Vespasian apparently healed a blind man and a man that had a withered hand, fulfilling Matthew 24, 23, where Jesus says, hey, listen, they're going to, false prophets in Christ are going to appear and perform great signs and miracles to deceive even the elect, if it's possible. Vespasian, according to Josephus, did those miracles. Paul wrote, listen to this carefully, in 2 Thessalonians 2, 3 through 12. This is well before the destruction this is Paul writing to believers in Thessalonica and he's giving them insight about what's happening. Let no man deceive you by any means for that day shall not come except there comes a falling away first and that man of sin be revealed the son of perdition. Now let me stop you right there. Paul, what was happening is there was a rumor that the second coming had already happened, okay? And Paul is writing to the believers at Thessalonica saying, don't let anyone receive you by any means. That day will not come unless there comes a falling away first and that man of sin be revealed, revealed as the son of perdition. Well, you know what that tells us indirectly? That the believers in that day believed and knew that the second coming would occur without notice and the people would disappear without notice because they were going about and saying it's already happened. And that means the, the believers in Paul's day were saying, we're told that the second coming has already happened. He's already come and taken his believers. And they believed that was possible. For them to believe that was possible suggests to us that it was going to be an invisible rapture of the believers. It wasn't going to be this thing where the believers were taken, everybody sees it and writes it in their journals about it. You get it? So Paul says to them, don't let anyone deceive you. That day's not gonna come until there comes a falling away first, the man of it, uh, sin be revealed, the son of perdition who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called of God or that is worshiped, so that he as God sits in the temple, showing himself that he is God. Remember you not that when I was with you, I told you these things, and now you know what withholdeth that he might revealed in this time. Do you know what that line means? And now you know what withholdeth that he might be revealed in this time. 
Paul says, it's been said that it's already happened. It doesn't ha- hasn't happened yet. That time is being withheld until he, this son of perdition is revealed, until he shows himself as who he is. For the mystery of iniquity is already at work, he says. That's he's saying that this antichrist is already at work, this false god. This is in Paul's day, already at work, and, and just wait for it. Only he that now letteth will let until he be taken out of the way, meaning God's gonna let this happen until this guy's taken out of the way. Who's the guy? Vespasian, in all probability. He's the one who's out there saying, I am God. Paul continues, and then shall that wicked be revealed, wicked's uppercase there in the King James, whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth, even him whose coming is after the working of Satan with all power and signs and lying wonders and with all deceivableness of unrighteousness in them that perish, because they receive not the love of the truth that they might be saved. And for this cause, God shall send them a strong delusion that they should believe a lie, that they all might be damned who believe not the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness, end quote. Futurists who are waiting for the second coming of Christ take that passage and they continue to look for signs in our day and age for these things to come up. This person who has all these lying wonders and abilities to deceive, to pop up, and they use 2 Thessalonians as the proof text for it. Uh, it's, it, they're waiting for that miracle worker demon to show up. Immediately prior to becoming Caesar, Vespasian, the former Roman uh, general of the Jewish war, he was against the Jews in that war, was approached by that blind man and a man with a withered hand. These two men fell before the emperor and begged to be healed. And initially, Vespasian, according to Josephus, was reluctant. He probably knew, I, you know, I probably can't do this or I don't want to. But he then did try to heal them. Josephus writes, quote, from history, with a smiling expression and surrounded by an expectant crowd of bystanders, Vespasian did what he was asked. Instantly, the cripple recovered the use of his hand and the ray of light dawned again upon his blind companion. Both these incidents are still vouched for by eyewitnesses, though there is nothing now to be gained by lying. So in his own annal of history that is respected by people worldwide and has been for thousands of years, Josephus says, Vespasian, who believed himself to be the Messiah, performed miracles. Jesus warned his apostles, beware of those. They're going to perform miracles at even the very elect. It's been fulfilled. We call this fulfilled prophecy. It's done. So you don't need to spend your time in the paper with your Bible study in the morning, looking for a European man of descent who's tall, dark, and handsome, who's rich and comes from a family like they did in the Omen, who is the next Antichrist. It was fulfilled there in scripture, which brings a lot of relief to us now. Shortly after Nero's death, Rome fell into a civil war. Not long after becoming emperor of Rome, uh, Vespasian inaugurated a new age of peace, having put an end to both war in Israel and a civil war in Rome and Vespasian revived the Roman Empire. And having done so, he easily represents the beast who would revive in Revelation 13. And when we get to Revelation 13, we'll talk about that. Furthermore, the ancient Jewish prophecy predicted 
that a king would arise out of Israel to rule the world. During Israel's war with Rome, many Jews fully expected the Messiah to rise up then and forcibly lead them into victory. The Jews, however, lost this war and then turned and looked to Vespasian as the promised one they had been looking for. So that before they were destroyed as a nation, they said Vespasian, he performs miracles. He calls himself the Messiah. We didn't get that leader who was going to lead us out of uh, a bondage and, and into emancipation from Roman bondage. Vespasian is here to lead now. We look to him. And then the destruction came. So additionally, during the Jewish war, the leaders of the Jewish rebellion compelled a lot of people to act as prophets sent by God. And these people were suborned to predict that God would deliver Israel from the Romans. That's just another uh, added addition. Uh, okay, in verse 27, Jesus continues and says, here we go, we'll wrap it up, I think, with this. Final thing he says in Matthew for us today. For... As the lightning comes out of the east and shines even to the west, that's just an analogy, so shall the coming of the Son of Man be. We read that and we say, ah, oh, he's coming in the east and it sh he will shine all the way to the west. That's how we would talk about that. There are several ways to understand this apocalyptic verbiage and one or more of them could be correct, all of them viable. First of all, re-listen to what Jesus actually says. For as the lightning comes out of the east and shines even to the west, so shall the coming of the Son of Man be. So he's just making a comparison, right? In the most simplest of terms, we could say that the coming of the Son of Man would be in the east. It would be bright and quick and evidenced in the skies in the east, not his literal presence on earth, you notice that he says, he uses a heavenly reference to talk about his coming. Lightning comes in the sky. It comes down, but it doesn't stay here. So he uses lightning to describe the imagery of his return. I will come from the east as lightning comes from the east and shines to the west. So not a literal presence on the ground. Where we get that, I don't know. In the Old Testament, when God was described as coming in the clouds, they would talk about him rumbling the earth with thunder and lightning. Let me give you an example. Second Samuel 22.10 says, He departed the heaven, this is the Old Testament, and came down, talking about God. Dark clouds were under his feet. He mounted the cherubim and flew. He soared on the wings of the wind. He made darkness his canopy around him, and dark rain clouds the sky. Out of the brightness of his presence, bolts of lightning blazed forth. The Lord thundered from heaven. The voice of the Most High resounded. He shot his arrows and scattered the enemy. With great bolts of lightning, he routed them. So Jesus, in describing his second coming here, uses very similar Hebraic language. I mean, there in, in 2 Samuel, it's a lightning strike. The lightning comes from the east to the west, so shall Jesus' return be, illustrates the fact that when Christ comes, on the clouds in judgment, he will do so as the Lord has done in the past, riding on the storm, bringing lightning with him. It's all very picturesque, but not in a literal sense. Matthew 24, 27 was fulfilled literally and symbolically in the Jewish war. Um, Tacitus, the Roman historian, says this about lightning 
Listen to what this non-Christian, non-Hebrew historian says about this coming of Christ. In the sky appeared a vision of armies in conflict of glistening armor. A sudden lightning flash from the clouds lit up the temple. The doors of the holy place abruptly opened. A superhuman voice was heard to declare that the gods were leaving it. And in the same instant came the rushing tumult of their departure. That's recorded in Josephus Wars uh, 33. In this brief account, Tacitus, the secular Roman, may have unknowingly fulfilled what Jesus said to look for, lightning coming from the east to the west. Also notice how Tacitus mentions a superhuman voice was heard. 2 Samuel twenty-two fourteen says, the Lord thundered from heaven and the most high uttered his voice. Josephus also mentions this in his War of the Jews. He says, quote, before sunsetting, chariots and troops of soldiers in their armor, listen, were seen running about among the clouds and surrounding of cities. So this is Josephus saying, before, the, before in the War of the Jews, all this stuff is seen in heaven. We could see chariots roaring about in the clouds. It was all a spiritual vision by those who could see. Perhaps the most detailed description of the second coming is found in Revelation 19, 11 through 14, which we will cover when we get to it. But let me just, let me just touch on it really quickly now. It says, And I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and he that sat upon him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he does judge and make war. His eyes were as a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns, and he had his name written, and no man knew but he himself, and he was clothed with a vestiture dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses, clothed in white linen, white and clean. There is a picture, the imagery of the armies that were gonna come with him, to uh, bring reward and judgment. So uh, those verses, if you remember, parallel perfectly to uh, the first horse of the apocalypse and the being riding on that horse. Could both Tacitus and Josephus have unwittingly described the second coming of Christ that is in harmony with Christ's own description? I think so. Additionally, According to Tacitus, a sudden lightning flash from the clouds lit up the temple. This seems to imply that the lightning struck the temple during what appears to be the appearance of Christ. Where did the temple stand? It stands on the east edge of Jerusalem. So when Jesus says, as lightning comes from the east and shines to the west, on the east edge of Jerusalem is the temple. And since Tacitus says that there was sudden lightning that lit up that temple, that's a fulfillment too of what Jesus had prophesied. And then, um, I'm gonna skip that. The 12th legion uh, that was called to come in and help destroy Jerusalem uh, was mustered out of Syria and it once guarded Rome's eastern borders um, against the Parthians. The 12th legion had another name, Legio Duodecima Fulminata, which means we are armed with lightning. 
So now we have a literal fulfillment of Jesus saying, as the east, as the lightning comes from the east to the west, so shall the coming of the Son, uh, Son of Man be. We have uh, a literal fulfillment in the Roman armies, the 12th legion that was called forth to destroy Jerusalem, came out of the east, and on their uniforms, Legio Duodecima Fulminata was armed with lightning, was their credo, lightning bolts on their uniforms. So there's another fulfillment. Additionally, the military flag of the 12th Legion, which was flown wherever they were, was the lightning bolt. So uh, as lightning comes from the east, is visible to the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. Additionally, we have to note that Rome, uh, the symbol of Rome was Aquila, Aquila, and who was a messenger of Jupiter who carried Jupiter's lightning bolt. All of these things are references to lightning coming from the east to the west. Some may have application, others may not. At verse 28 of Matthew 24, Jesus finally says, and I think we're going to end it with this, we are, for, whos, for wheresoever the carcass is, there will the eagles be gathered together. That is the most esoteric, strange line in most of all of chapter 24. What does he mean by that? Where the carcasses there will the eagles be gathered together. Vultures and eagles easily know where dead bodies are and come to devour them. And so it would be with the Roman army. Jerusalem is dead in a putrid corpse. It's spiritually dead. Its life is gone. It is ready to be devoured. Could Jesus be saying that the Roman armies will find Jerusalem out as an eagle would find a dead carcass and will come to devour it. Uh, what if, when it comes to God has always worked, how God has always worked on fallen man and nations, what Jesus says rings true. Where wickedness abounds, Sodom and Gomorrah or any other place in the Old Testament, God uses his instruments of chastisement to come and fall upon them as a bird of prey would fall upon a dead body. I personally find it interesting that Jesus does not use the term vulture here. It's not the, the, the Greek word for vulture. He uses eagle instead of vulture. The invading armies of uh, Rome would certainly be described as eagles and not vultures. And so to me, that speaks of their hawkish, superior nature in war, the power of the army coming in, not just some crusty old buzzard picking out a dead body, but this is a powerful imagery when Jesus said, for wheresoever a carcass is, there will eagles be gathered together to come in. Just more potentiality. Then prior, just prior to the fall of Jerusalem, the remaining Jewish rebels fled to the temple fortress for refuge. Eventually the Romans broke into the temple, causing a great massacre. Concerning that aftermath, Josephus writes, and we'll wrap it up here. Quote, nor was there any place in the city of Jerusalem that had no dead bodies in it. But what was entirely covered with those that were killed either by the famine or the rebellion and all was full of dead bodies of such as had perished either by that sedition or by that famine. I think there's sound implication here in, uh, in verse 28 of those unburied bodies becoming food for vultures. So because of the apocalyptic nature of the words Jesus uses, some of these things are the weakest points to support the fulfillment view. They're the, some of the weakest uh, that we've covered. I don't think they prove uh, anything, but I do think that they lend to the body of work that suggests all of this has been fulfilled. 
All right, questions, comments? That was a lot of information, I know. Questions, comments? We're going with Patty. Whatever you want to call me, Sean. Is this I, like Pat, I like Patty. Oh, okay. Um, Matthew 24. Matthew 24 is making more sense in the Preterist view. So thank you for teaching it. Um, thank you for listening. Praise God. Praise God. Others? Steve Waugh? We, we have to have the nicknames. So I was wondering um, how uh, 666, you know, being Nero and whatnot, how that fits in with Vespasian. Because mm. I've heard, I've Both. been kind of confused, yeah, but I've heard that for the most part it means Nero, yeah. it, the, way, the way it plays out. But Yeah, uh, we're going to talk about that in in great detail when we get to the 666 yeah i figured but, but that is in my opinion definitely the gematra the matria mm -hmm. and uh, what that is just as a little foreshadowing is because of the heightened difficult dangerous times the christians were in john was writing while it was still scary he says i want you to consider this number 666 and the jews assign a numeric value to the letters and a gematria, if you take 666, 600, he doesn't say 666, he says 660 and 6. If you take those three, 660 and 6, they spell out uh, Caesar Nero or Nero Caesar. So he's giving them code. This is how you'll know who he is. To answer Steve's question, how does Vespasian, if he was the one who's doing the miracles as the false prophet, who in the heck was uh, or the antichrist who is nero and what was his role we'll talk about that okay good good comment one more thing real quick yeah um i was in the introductions to revelation in both of the bibles i have it says how their dating was 95 and then 96 and um i, re I remember you think you covered it right when we were starting revelation but um why i guess do they why, why is that the most common just to refute there is what talking about or there is a one reference. There's one historical reference from Eusebius writing 300 and some years out that talks about John being a, Polycarp being a disciple of John. And, and that is the one reason why they say, if that's the case, it had to have been written in 95 or 96. I would challenge anybody, we'll send it to you for free. And there's plenty of resources, but I think we summarize it pretty well. Knife to a gunfight. The book on uh, a revelation about revelation. There's a chapter in that book. Read that. The internal evidence for the dating of Revelation slams 95, 96 AD. And that writing could have been as early as 37, all the way as late as 67. But that John received that revelation well before the destruction of Jerusalem. That being said, if he didn't, the preterist view is rubbish pure rubbish and everything I'm teaching from the standpoint is not believable and all these things in scripture let's just say it's pure rubbish okay then we have to go back to the New Testament and we have to justify why Jesus Peter James John Paul all spoke as if in the Greek his coming was imminent and coming and the only answer that we have to that is 
they were wrong. And I do not believe that for a second. So great stuff, Steve. That's going to keep us moving. Anything else? Okay. Uh, let's pray. First of all, we have on the live chat a note here. It says, we have people who watch at home and are posting live, and they're also going to be calling in. This says, I'm in a despondent depression because I miss the friends I had in the LDS church. I have no one. I just had lunch with uh, someone who told me the same thing. Can Sean please pray for me? I wish I had his faith that God would hear my prayers, but I don't. Uh, what's her name? No name. Okay, let's pray. Lord, in the body, we're all believers and we're, we're there by faith all over the world, one body. And we have a sister who's written that she's despondent. She doesn't have friends. And we pray that you will show yourself in her life and you will bring the right people into her life, someone that she can communicate with and help her to understand that you are there, you are aware, and there are people that she can have fellowship with outside of the LDS community. We throw our all when we're members of that faith into making associations with people of the faith. But then when we come to understand the truth of it and walk away, we're left pretty lonely. And, and we, even our own families don't understand us. So we have right in here a young woman who is depressed over the loss of family and loss of friends. And Lord, let us remind her that the Lord said, you know, if you don't have that difficulty with your family, if you love them more than me, you're not worthy of being my disciple. And it's not a, a threatening uh, imprecation, it's just a reality. And so we pray that you'll strengthen her and help her to understand the value of putting you first over family, friends, and that you will provide her with better relationships as she trusts you. We pray for people on our list. We pray for Don Preston's wife who's suffering uh, from cancer and, and treatment. We pray for Paul, that he will come to know the Lord. Pray for Patrick's mom, Suzanne, that her seizures will stop. She'll be healthy and strong in the Lord. We pray for Kurt, recovering from a recent stroke, and Amanda to receive a counseling for her addictions and respond to God's calling for her. We pray for Joe Franson and his family. And then I, uh, we also pray again for Brother Grant and hurting his hand, and for people who are struggling with their uh, physical and mental and emotional and financial help, uh, we pray that you'll help them and you'll uh, heal them, and you will show that you are the one who's authored such healing. And then I just personally pray, Lord, before all my brothers and sisters, for my three daughters, uh, Cassidy and, and Delaney and Mallory, and the transitions that they're all going in their, through in their life, that you will reveal yourself and you'll show yourself uh, in their lives. Pray this for everybody within the sound of my voice, that their children will know that God is working through them, that their parents will know that God is present in each of them and that they will turn and hear and they will be converted. We love you, Lord. We seek you. Be with us as we exit and go out into the world for another week until we meet again. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Ah. In your truth and teach me, turn me up.